Philippians chapter 4 is one of the most loved chapters of the New Testament. And it's a real privilege to be able to uh, look at it together with you this evening. I was thinking, Anne, uh, how much verse 9 chimed in with what you've said when Paul says to the Philippians, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. How amazing to be able to say that to a church, to a group of Christians. Looking at Philippians chapter 4, I've divided into uh, six things, which I think is what the letters from this, lessons from this letter might help us to think about tonight. The first one is how to help one another how to pray, how to think, how to be content, how to give, and how to bless one another. And if we can achieve all that in the next 20 minutes, we'll be doing well. How to help one another. Well, poor Euodia and Syntyche often get a bad press. But let me remind you that in the best-run households, we don't always get along. We only have to think of our human families to know how true that is. Falling out with each other in the family, in the human family, affects us all. I well remember my own childhood. My parents often fought, and when they did, they didn't speak to one another for a week, and it was horrible. And that's what I grew up with, promising myself that if I ever got married, it wouldn't be like that. Terry's family also has its people who didn't talk to one another for years. Many families are like that. Paul's plea is that the family of God in Philippi should not be like that. His plea is that we should be of one mind in the Lord. This is relevant to us as a church as the family of God. I wonder how easily we see ourselves as a family. One of the things that attracted Terry and me to stay at Church Lane after that first visit over two years ago was that sense of family here in this place. Long may it continue. Someone has said that if you think of the family as a wheel, then the closer you are to the hub, thinking of a bicycle wheel, the closer you are to one another. So drawing near to the centre, to the hub if you like, will draw us inevitably closer to one another. So if we want to know how to stay together, perhaps that's one of the things to draw closer to Jesus 
the reality of any family is that we don't all see things in the same way. But in the Lord, in the Lord, we can be a family. I remember hearing an account from a rector of a big church in Cheltenham. There was considerable wrangling going on about the reordering of that church a long time ago now. There was a lot of contention. And after a day together, one Saturday, the PCC took a vote. And the vote went in favor of the reordering. The rector said in his sermon the next morning that one of the most outspoken people against the reordering had delivered a letter to him around midnight. And the letter said, Although this is not what I would have wanted, and although this is not how I see it, I want you to know that you have my 100% support. How gracious is that? And how important is that? And that is what Paul is saying. He said, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, those who are yoked together in the service of Christ, help those women who have contended with me for the gospel. Isn't that wonderful? Yodi and Syntyche have contended with Paul for the gospel along with my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. The book of life, of course, is mentioned at various points in the Bible. But perhaps this is the one we ought to think about. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, in which our names are written when we come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, whose names are written in the book of life family. So I want to say to you that when we have disagreements in our church family, those of us looking on have a choice. We either take sides or we seek by love and by our common commitment to Jesus to get everyone onto the same side. That is what Paul is urging here for these dear two women. How to pray. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. Paul's call to rejoicing are maybe the words, if we're asked, what did Paul write, what did he say, perhaps, These are the only ones we can conjure up. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. But do we notice what he says next? 
he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. Don't let's get stuck on the rejoicing and ignore the gentleness. Because here, Paul is linking rejoicing with gentleness. He links it with Jesus, perhaps, because there was nobody more gentle than Jesus. Gentle Jesus. I wonder what your picture is of the gentleness of Jesus. Perhaps it's how he dealt with the woman taken in adultery. Perhaps it's the way he washed his disciples' feet or took the children into his arms or raised up Peter's mother-in-law. Or was it even the way he looked at Judas at that last meal and said to him, whatever you're going to do, go and do it quickly. Maybe it was the way he forgave the thief on the cross or said Mary's name in the garden on the resurrection morning. So does Paul perhaps mean that we should be gentle and sensitive in our own rejoicing or perhaps in the way we exhort one another to rejoice through our tears. I never read in the Gospel that Jesus said, chin up, it could be worse. And perhaps there are times when all we need to say is what Paul says next. The Lord is near. I have several times this week sent emails and a letter to people in dire straits. And I've simply said, may the Lord of love hold you tight in his arms. Paul goes on to talk about how we should pray, how we shouldn't be anxious, how we should pray with thanksgiving, in every situation, telling the Father everything and asking him to set us free from anxiety and then knowing his peace. When I was a young curate's wife in Blackburn and given to anxiety, I met a wonderful woman called Marion Ashton. Um, perhaps you have heard of her or her husband, Bill. She talked about the verse in Isaiah 26, verse 3. Anybody know it? Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. She said, when we feel that gnawing anxiety and when our imaginations begin to feel like a runaway train hurtling downhill down the track. We should set a buffer across the track against which the train comes to rest. And the buffer should read, He loves you. This peace which passes understanding, another of those things which we remember in our head, I call peace against the odds. Peace when there shouldn't be peace. 
peace against the odds. Paul says, May the peace of God, which passes all understanding, in other words, it defies human understanding, guard your heart and your mind. And I just want to say that a guard should never stand down. We have heard about the terrible shooting in Florida, about the guard who was armed but failed to apprehend the man with the gun. He failed in his duty of protection. A wall of protection that never stands down. That's the peace of God guarding your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. That buffer which says he loves you. The Lord who watches over thee neither slumbers nor sleeps. And this week we are using at breakfast time this wonderful commentary on the psalm by Alec Batir. And he's coming on the ver- this verse in the psalm that says, The angel of the Lord encamps around the dwellings of the just. And he says that God has a mobile home, which I love that. There is no situation, says Alec, where he is anything but near. With his mobile home pitched alongside us, so is always to be with us. Isn't that an amazing thought? God's mobile home. How to pray and then how to think. You remember how it goes, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is admirable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. I visited someone in prison this week, someone who recently stabbed the man she loves in a moment of derangement or psychosis. As she told me about what was in her mind that day and in the aftermath, it was awful. But it was an accumulation of rubbish. I say that reverently. Stuff down the years that she had dwelt on. She's not a committed Christian. (coughs) Stuff which she dwelt on, read, perhaps watched on TV, imbibed unconsciously as we do, until that fearful night, some of it bubbled up and created a nightmare. If you like, a kind of living hell. So how do we guard against it? Or going back to the last thing we were thinking about, guard our hearts and our minds. It matters what we fill our minds with. For though we might say it's only a story, it's only a drama, it's only a program, it's not real, actually, (coughs) it is all based in reality somewhere. It's the stuff that dreams and nightmares are made of. I don't know if you've ever had a dream. It's 
I dream quite a lot and thought to yourself, where in the world did that stuff come from? And you know, in our heart of hearts, we know what is good for us and we know what is bad for us. And it's a matter of being disciplined. I worked in Stafford Prison and Shrewsbury Prison for seven years. And I know the polluting effect that that environment had on me then. <clears throat> I know that the language, the prison language, as Terry calls it, is in there. For I lived with it for seven years. And I can swear in my head, though not out loud, you'll be pleased to know. But who knows? As I grow older and begin to lose my inhibitions, what might happen? Some things we cannot control. We can ask God, though, to heal our memories. And as that lovely colic says, to cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. And we can guard our heart and mind. It's a serious thing. We know that, we know, for instance, pornography is a huge issue. It's a huge issue even in the church. It's talked about every year at the Keswick Convention. One of those things, one of those many things which creeps up on us. And before we know where we are, it has made its home in our heart. Paul says in Corinthians, love rejoices in the truth, keeps no records of wrong, and we need to make a commitment, serious commitment, to pursue and fill our hearts with the things which are pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. And imagine, if those were the only things in our minds how wonderful our conversation might be. Paul then says, if we do that, the God of peace, the God of peace, the God of peace against the odds will be with us. How to be content? Well, I don't know if I've learnt yet to be content. I'm, I'm interested in it. It must be a lifelong pursuit, the pursuit after contentment. I have learned, says Paul, the secret of being content. So what's the opposite of contentment? So perhaps that's where we should go with this. Well, it's always wanting something or even someone better. When I used to do a lot of weddings, and I still do the occasional one, I used to always say to the bride, have, or ask the bride, have you chosen your wedding dress? To which she would often say yes. And then I would say, well, have you stopped looking at wedding dresses? Because the chances are, if you keep looking after you've chosen, you'll find one that you like better. And then you will not be content with the one you already have. It's simple illustration, but it applies across the board in life. The opposite of contentment, envy, jealousy, 
materialism, those are the enemies of contentment. We let them take root at our peril. As Paul says to Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. For, he goes on to say, we brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. So, if we have food and something to wear, let us be content with that. Wow. But that's what Paul wrote to Timothy, not the words of gay pie. Jesus said, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. So is this the secret of contentment? The next words that Jesus said, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. How to give. Each one of these houses, of course, is a sermon all on its own, but we're sort of getting through the whole chapter. <coughs> How to give. This wonderful, wonderful uh, thank you bit of this letter. Paul is thanking the Philippian church for their support, for their giving, and Terry and I were missionaries with OMF for 13 years, and how we thank with all our hearts the people who supported us. OMF was a mission, is a mission where you are not permitted to ask for money, but simply to make your needs made known to God. And it was an amazing way to live. When we came home and Terry got a stipend for being the vicar of Castle Church, I was very, very concerned about this monthly check that was paid into our bank. So how do we give? I think we have to be aware of the needs, whether this is at home or abroad. We need to be aware of the needs. And actually in OMF, if somebody said, is there anything you need? Hallelujah, you were allowed to tell them because they'd asked the question. We need to ask the question, what do you need? Is there something you need that I can help with? That's being aware of needs. And they were aware of Paul's needs. They were generous in their response. Paul described it as a fragrant offering. How wonderful. An acceptable sacrifice pleasing to God. And he, he has talked about the Philippian church to the church in Corinth because he very much wanted to encourage them to give. So listen to what he says, Paul says, about the church in Philippi. We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. It is noticeable that the most 
generous people on this earth are the ones who have the least. For I testify, says Paul, they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. See, we get it all back to front, don't we? I remember Mother Teresa saying that giving comes from the ground upwards. She said, it is not that I give to the poor, because Jesus said, I was poor and you helped me. It is that the poor is Jesus to me. And so the grace flows upwards. What a wonderful picture that is. They pleaded with us for the privilege. I wonder if we plead with those we support for the privilege of supporting them. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. And then Paul calls it this, the grace of giving. And that's what he says to the Philippians. It wasn't that I wanted what you could give me. It was that I wanted more to be accredited to your account, your account of the grace of giving. And one of the most challenging words that Paul wrote is one which uh, grips me whenever I think of it or read it. And it's this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. The bottom line for giving, are we prepared to become poor that others might be rich? But be comforted, for the willingness is there, for if the willingness is there. The gift is acceptable according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. The Lord does not expect us to give that which we do not have. Wonderful principles of giving. Lovely to have those two sides of it. Paul talking about the church in Philippi to the church in Corinth and here he is in Philippians 4 thanking them for their support. And finally, how to bless one another. The greetings at the end of the letter. The final greeting. Well, every time we say goodbye, we bless one another, don't we? For it is a contraction of God be with you. Perhaps when we say goodbye, we might think of that more. Or if you're in another language, adios means to God. I commit you to God. And here Paul is committing them to God. Greet all the saints. Greet all the believers. In another place he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. Well, we're not going to do that tonight. The brothers and sisters who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings. 
especially those who belong to Caesar's household. So we know Paul was in house arrest, as Emmy said, in Rome. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen.